0: Well, the truth is, um, bad things happen, don't they? Even to really, really good people. Uh, Many of us, even right now, are going through some kind of crisis. The loss of a job, a family member, or your personal health that's a concern, uh, a, a health crisis or a scare, maybe a conflict with, the, with a family member. What I want us to do over the next month at least, and I may stretch it a little further than that, but I want us to study, I want you to go with me to the Old Testament book of Daniel, and we're going to look at how a person of faith dealt with a crisis in his life. Now, the focus of this quarter, and certainly over the next month or two, is this idea of the nature of faith as involving both belief and action. Belief and then acting on what I believe in. You and I know uh, a little bit of the story of Daniel. What do you immediately think about when you think about the story of Daniel? The lion's den, I mean, you know, it's almost like that's the name of a rock group, Daniel and the lion's den. Yeah, but um, it just kind of flows right off your tongue, right? You remember his three friends. We're going to discuss them today and next week. We'll be in chapter 3 next week. And I'll bridge it a little bit with, with some teaching from chapter 2 next week. But his three friends were named? Larry, Moe, and Curly. No, that's not it. Uh, their names, the ones we remember that's interesting, is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But their names were really Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah. I'm I'm still working on getting that as easy as as I do Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We'll talk about why they have two sets of names. Um, But they were living in perilous times. Um, They lived in the capital of Jerusalem when it fell in in, uh, 586 B.C. But before that, the king of, um, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of, of the Babylonians began to lay siege to um, to Jerusalem in about 605. Now, go with me to the book of Daniel, and I want us to read just for a second here. I want us to get a little bit of a background because we're going to read just the first verse of the book. Is this, do I have, do I have a Daniel in this Bible? Yeah, I think I do. Okay, he's in here somewhere. There he is. It took me a minute to find him. Thank you, lots of help right there, that's good. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. We can track that to about 605 B.C., and nine years later, in 586, the, uh, it wouldn't be nine years, would it? That would be 11 years, what would that be? 14 and 19 years, something like that? 19. I just didn't do my arithmetic right. Uh, it's going to fall in 586. And uh, now, so when you're reading, recognize that that's what's going on, that so many of the nobles of Judah get carted off to uh, to Babylon, uh, including Daniel and his three friends. Uh, and it's not Larry, Moe, and Curly. Okay, that's not... not that. uh, so that's all going to happen... 68 605, 586, and, and thereafter. Um, uh, now, when you read in the Bible about the Babylonians, we kind of get that. Nebuchadnezzar was the king. Also, you may see the name Chaldean. That's the same as Babylonian, So that's the same group. And uh, we read about kind of their plight and their background here. Now, it's interesting. Um, look, at, look at the second verse of the book. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, okay, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. Now, the idea there is literally uh, Nebuchadnezzar kind of loots the temple as he, as he lays siege to Jerusalem. So a lot of the artifacts, those ancient artifacts, a lot of the articles of gold and bronze and silver, go, become part of the, uh, the Nebuchadnezzar treasury in in, uh, Babylon. But I want you you to catch what is said here in verse two because this bears us our notice. The Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his, meaning Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Isn't it interesting to think that as great as Nebuchadnezzar thought he was and he's got a pretty high opinion of himself. Ultimately, all of the players in this story are under the, the leadership, under the guidance, whether we acknowledge it or not, of the great king, of the king of kings, of the lord of lords. So ultimately, uh, whether Nebuchadnezzar would recognize that, and later in his life, he's, he is forced to recognize that. Now, part of the Babylonian strategy was to take the brightest and best, the sharpest in a kingdom that, that they were kind of taking over, and they would try to, to um, reacculturate them. So look at verse 4. Let's read verse 4 together. Youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence at every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning and knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court, and he ordered him to teach the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So notice the description of all these people that are re-acculturated, okay? I would not have been in that list, all right? Good looking and smart, you know, that's not me. So, um, but the idea was that what the, what the Chaldeans, what the, what the Babylonians wanted to do is take the sharpest people in the kingdom and assimilate them into Babylonian culture. That issue of assimilation is a big deal for our our discussion here. Among those taken from Jerusalem for that purpose were Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The four of them were the cream of the crop. And so they were taken into this this, um, kind of nobility plan here. Um, So, One of the components of the re-education of of these captives was changing their names. Daniel got a new name. It didn't stick. It's used only a couple of times in Daniel's book. What was his new name? Belteshazzar. I can understand why he wouldn't want. It's much easier to spell Daniel than it is to spell. But by the way, Belteshazzar had a reference in it to Uh, one of the Babylonian gods. No wonder he didn't want want that name to stick. But then they gave the other three friends uh, new Babylonian names as well. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And all those had something to do with some uh, small g godly activity. uh, At least the idea is those new names no longer reflect the name of the God of Judah. And that was part of this assimilation plan. But... Interesting to me, while Daniel's three friends are later referred to by their new names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's name, when it's mentioned Belteshazzar, is always mentioned in conjunction with Daniel. Uh, I don't know if we can make any connection with with how similar they became in comparison to him. I don't think so. But um, the idea here is We always see Daniel's name when he's being talked about, not just Belteshazzar. So when we start reading today, and Steve Blairman asks you to read here in just a second, there is a series of tests that are being given to these um, these nobles from Judah, and um, so Daniel and his friends are facing uh, these tests regarding their true loyalty to God. And we're going to begin that in verse 8. And Steve, if you'd read 8, 9, and 10. Daniel 1. But Daniel resolved not to What's the test? They're going to eat. They've been set before them, the king's food and wine. And uh, Daniel then makes a request here saying, you know, I really, we really can't eat that stuff. And so uh, it kind of sets up this test. Now, if, uh, Daniel refuses here, and he does it respectfully. We'll talk about his respect in a minute. But he, he respectfully refuses to uh, kind of be assimilated in this way. Now, there are two problems that, that I can think of and that I've read about that have to do with this food issue, okay? First, it could have been that the food that they were being served had previously been offered as sacrifices to some pagan god. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 8, where Paul addresses whether or not to eat a steak that has been offered to some, some uh, non-god, in some uh, pagan ritual. Could have been that, or it could have been that they were being offered bacon cheeseburgers. Read Leviticus 11, they can have the cheeseburger, they just can't have the bacon cheeseburger, Ralph. Okay. They, they can't do pork and other things. So is it that there was unclean food included in this, including about everything, Bill, that served at the Beast Feast, okay? I'm thinking, all right. Um, Or maybe it was something that was, some food that was used in some pagan ritual. Could it be that the reason uh, Daniel was saying, you know, uh, sir, we really can't eat that stuff. It could have to do with one of those things. Or maybe it's just a health thing. But otherwise, uh, he respectfully refuses to live by uh, a popular axiom in our day and here's what you put in your first blank. Ready? When in Rome. Let me give you a little background on that. It's used a lot. When in Rome, do as the Romans do, is used in our day kind of like uh, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? Um, it originally came from the 4th century A.D. It was, a, it was between two bishops, who uh, one was writing to the other, um, uh, Augustine, uh, Augustine has gotten a letter, um, and it's from a paragraph to Augustine from Ambrose in the 300s. In the so in the 4th century, when he says this, okay, uh, and he's given him advice of when he goes to Rome, and he says this, when I go to Rome, I fast on Saturday, but here in Milan, I don't fast. On the same principle, observe the custom prevailing in whatever church you come to attend if you desire neither to give offense by your conduct nor to find cause of offense in another. So he basically said, and that all got kind of distilled down to when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Can you see how far we've gotten from its original intent between one uh, really saintly bishop to another? When in Rome now means what? Doesn't it kind of mean anything goes, depending on where you are? Uh, kinda, okay. Daniel couldn't do that. His conscience wouldn't let him do that. Modern culture has hijacked this axiom to justify accommodating oneself to whatever secular customs are practiced in a given given location. So, Daniel, if if he had, if it had come to Daniel's day. Uh, Daniel was confronted with this idea of in Babylon, do as the Babylonians do, and he just couldn't do that. His heart wouldn't let him do that. Now, you and I have got to ask ourselves how we're going to deal with this kind of on a daily basis. Depending on what it's like at your office space, depending on what it's like maybe at the school you attend or in your neighborhood functions or even with family? Am I going to be assimilated into where I am? Am I going to do it like they do it because I'm here? Now I want you to notice a phrase that really jumped out to me in in my reading this week. It's from verse 8. Notice what Daniel did here. Notice the very first action of verse 8. Daniel, you ready, made up his mind. Rhonda read an article to me six months ago that she was impressed with by some admiral that said, first thing you got to do every day is make up your bed. It's more, good thing, I'm pretty good at it. It's more important to make up your mind. Daniel made up his mind that he would not be assimilated into a pagan culture. Can I tell you this? If he had not, you and I would not know the name Daniel. Dr. Fossard, your middle name would be different. It would be, you know, Belteshazzar. I, I, I don't know. John Belteshazzar. Fossard. It just doesn't ring as well. Didn't I like the G A D F a lot there? Aren't you glad that... uh, Some people are sitting here thinking, I'm glad he doesn't know much about me. (laughs) Okay, so, Daniel made up his mind. Now, look at verse 9. He didn't just say, you know what, I'm digging in my heels. I'm not doing this. He went through the appropriate governmental channels. He went to the guy who was in charge of all this, kind of of the king's assistant. He's kind of one of... um, One of the, it just calls him an official here. And he says, he goes through the right channels and he says to him, uh, I'm asking permission to do this. I, I love that about him. He wasn't just poking the bear here. He went through the proper channels. Look at verse verse two. Again, the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand along with some of the vessels of the house of God. The idea is, again, you and I have got to recognize God is in control here. Not Nebuchadnezzar and not Nebuchadnezzar's prime minister or whoever it is he's talking to. But at the same time, Daniel is respectful of those who are in charge. Okay? Okay? He, is, uh, he goes through the proper governmental channels here. Now, in verse 10, when we read what's going on in verse 10, we need to recognize that Daniel is not just speaking for himself. Let me read verse 10 again. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has appointed your food and your drink, for why should he see your faces? So that's plural, plural, looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age. Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. So Daniel has spoken on behalf of himself and Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah, okay? He's not just talking for himself. He's talking for all four of them here. Daniel is speaking for the group. What's the official's concern? His ultimate concern is his own neck. Yeah. But he's saying, okay, wait a minute. If you do this and you guys come through this test period looking really bad, it's off with my head. So this is a real test. It's, It's very important here. Because this official might lose his head if he acquiesces to this, which he does. But if their appearance suffers in this uh, this trial, this 10-day trial, then it's not going to go well for Daniel and his three friends, and it's certainly not going to go well for the official. Nebuchadnezzar has lifted a guy's head off before, and he can do it again. Now, let's go to verse 11. Cindy, can I get you to read down 11 down through um, 16? 16. Okay, now, I think it's really unfair that at the first Sunday school class of the new year, we talk about diet. This is just not even right. And I want you to know that I didn't put this in there, okay, even though I, I need to do this, you know. Uh, my Last time I went to my doctor, he says, I need you to lose X amount of pounds. And I said, I want a second opinion. He said, you're ugly too. So again, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know. Yeah, I must go to you. No. Uh, so the issue here is diet. Dana suggests an alternate diet. Now, Ralph Mason, you're going to love this because I've, I've done the Hebrew work here. There's an interesting word that's used when he says here, when he uses the word vegetables, okay? He uses the word vegetables. That word is only used one time in all the Old Testament in Hebrew, and it's right here. So if you know, it's kind of called, uh, when we talk about it in Greek, we talk about a hop We talk about a word that doesn't have another word. You can't compare it to its use somewhere else. So we really can't be really, really sure what it means. I think it means burgers and fries. <laughs> you know. I know a little Hebrew. He's a little short guy. Never mind. uh, uh, uh. So the idea here is is the diet, now now the truth is, in the original, the the word seems to mean in general, things that are sown, sown, so, okay, things that come up out of the field, that's the word, Uh, but potatoes come out of the field, right, french fries come out of the field, I'm, I'm good with that, all right. So he says here, why don't you, uh, his, his alternate suggestion for a diet is to, um, uh, we're going to eat nothing but vegetables and water, okay, things that are sown here, and the test then, uh, that's in verse 11 and 12, he's talking about, then by the time we get to verse 13, the, the test is a comparison with others, maybe like them, who have assimilated. Okay? They're not gonna. Others who have assimilated. And uh, and the issue here is about results. Okay? Let's see who looks better. Let's see, you know, whose hair is more shiny. Uh, let's see who... Has a better complexion, all that kind of stuff. After the ten days, uh, it's the assimilation is the issue, and it's about uh, uh, it's really about results here. So in verse fourteen, now by the way, that should say uh, I can blame no one but me. That should say Daniel's Daniel apostrophe s. Okay. So as we get to verse fourteen, they tested him for ten days. Um, Daniel's tact is rewarded. They allow him to do that. You remember, we said he had, he had some great tact. Now, look with me. Uh, let me show you. This is kind of a style for him, and I need to learn from this. Look at verse 14. I'm sorry, two fourteen. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, who was the captain of the king's bodyguard. This is another scene, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. So, uh, isn't it interesting that that Daniel's approach to this governmental official is what? Tactful. It is, he's, he's using restraint. Uh, according to verse 14 in chapter 2, he's using discernment, discretion. Those are good things. Um, so this tact with which he goes to the original leader is rewarded here. And they're allowed this 10-day test. Now, look at verse 15. What were the test results? what? They were eating, they were eating potatoes. They were fatter. They're fatter. But I think the literal idea is they didn't lose any weight. Uh, they didn't want to, after 10 days, show up in front of this prefect, in, in front of this uh, prime minister or whoever he was, uh, looking gaunt, looking unhealthy. By the way, you remember Jesus had something to say about this when you're fasting? He said, you know, don't, he said, dress up clean up, don't look or look like you're fasting. Well, you've kind of got this idea here and so um, the test results were good and in verse 16, the captain of the guard or whoever the, the, the official is here, um, he, he makes good on his promise. Uh, he keeps them um, there and allows them to do this, um, to do this um, this test and the test turns out good. Now, We've got to deal with what comes next. You remember the issue is, I think, whether or not Daniel and his three friends are going to assimilate into Babylonian life and culture. And we're saying that they're not. They have been taught a lot about Babylonian history. They've probably been taught a lot about geography that they didn't previously know. They've been taught some other things Maybe even science that they wouldn't have exposure to in Jerusalem, but they're not going to assimilate into the culture. Now I want you to go with with us to verse seventeen. John, can I get you to read seventeen down through twenty-one? Let's see. If, what you got to catch here is after this ten-day trial, the uh, captain of the guard has got to. He's got to. Uh, have some support for what he's doing. You've got to make sure the boss is okay with it. So what he's going to do is take these four guys in front of Nebuchadnezzar. This is a risk. Okay. Now, John, read 17 down to 21, would you? That last verse is really important. I hope we get time to kind of get to it. Okay, here's the deal. They go before the king. Prior to this time, not only have they had this, uh, this dietary test, but they've also dealt with, uh, notice what all they're being trained in, what all they're being taught. What are they being taught? Sorry? Lots of things, including even literature. Uh, they've been, they're being taught how to speak Chaldean. Um, if you do some of the study, there was a mathematical component to all this. I mean, it's, it's really incredible. They're, they're getting, being given the best education in the world. But what you've got, you and I've got to know, is that they had an additional teacher beside the Chaldeans. Their teacher was God. And their exposure to the Word of God was very, very important. Um, um, it's, it's incredible to me to kind of think about this. They have an extra teacher. Now, what, they, what they've come up against here is the same thing that, that the church comes up against today. How can the church present the gospel in the thought forms of surrounding culture as winsomely as possible without giving up the central core of the gospel? Uh, Morgan, you and I had a guy show up from, from Arizona the other day to talk about this. How do we package the message that fits without losing the original message of the gospel? Oh, we've had this issue in every day since 2,000 years ago. How do we package it in some such a way that the message is not lost, but we become culturally relevant? All right? Now... Even in the Old Testament, this was an issue. And I want to give you a couple of examples. of uh, we, We're looking today at how Daniel and his three friends handled it. But think for a minute how Jonah took care of this. He was at one extreme. Jonah wanted absolutely nothing to do with the culture into which he, God sent him to preach. And so he just rejected the culture altogether. In fact, he walks in, pops off, uh, preaches, you know, hellfire, fire and brimstone. And the people respond in Nineveh in droves. He saves the city. He's probably the only example in the scriptures of a preacher who's ticked off because the people he's preaching to responded the right way. Think about that. Now, fast forward to the story of Esther who really had an assimilation issue also. Hers was at the opposite extreme, okay? Um, Esther came close to allowing the context of her new culture to blind her to the obligation to her own people. And she had to have uh, an uncle call her out on that. So either I ignore the culture altogether like Jonah did, or I become so assimilated that I forget who I really am, as Esther almost did. I'm glad she didn't completely do that or I take the tack of Daniel and his three friends. and I just say, I'm going to get the best, I'm going to make the best of this opportunity, but I'm not going to do as the Romans do when I'm in Rome. I'm going to learn what I can, but I'm going to recognize that my ultimate teacher is God. If you look at verse 18, there's kind of this scary moment where at the end of the time set by the king, To have them all kind of trained, he brings them in for his own test. This is an oral exam. And King Nebuchadnezzar uh, has these four men brought in front of him by uh, the captain of the guard here. And he talks with them. What's the outcome? It's kind of scary, frankly, to think of what these guys went through. Look at at 1-5. The king appointed for them a daily ration for the king's choice food. We read about that. He appointed that they should be educated for three years at the end of which they were to enter in the king's personal service. So this is the end of their three-year training. They go before the king to see if they pass muster. It's kind of a scary moment. By the way, if they don't pass, what happens? Probably they're done away with. And so if you read verse 19, what's the outcome? They entered the king's service. They passed the test. Now, it's interesting here. I, I, I just had to think about this for a minute. They wanted to be accepted by Nebuchadnezzar, but it was much more important for Daniel and his friends to be accepted by whom? God. And the truth is, if I'm accepted by him, who other, whose other approval is really needed? carries with it its own answer. The four foreigners, and I use that word uh, strategically here, they are foreigners. They are without peer. Remember a couple of weeks ago, when we were together, we were talking about the wise men a little bit. Daniel becomes a magi of magis. He becomes a leader of leaders here. He is the wisest man in the kingdom and his three friends are just right behind him. Daniel will outlast all of the others, even in a foreign land. Uh, When I'm talking about all the others, I'm not talking about his three friends. I'm talking about uh, all of the other Babylonians he'll outlast in, in terms of leadership. We'll talk about that as we work through the story. But what you've got to understand is Daniel is in Babylon in service to the king as a prime minister for about 70 years. He's going to be an old man by the time it's over. In fact, I'm continuing to do the research. It could be could be that the lion's den happened when Daniel was in his 80s. The pictures that we see of a 40-year-old guy or a 35-year-old guy may not be the truth. Because he served under Nebuchadnezzar. And when the Medes took over and when the Persians took over, he's still in the service of the king, all the way up to Cyrus, who returns them back to Jerusalem 70 years later. He outlasts all of them. Now, here's my my story. I've been reading, uh, some of you who've been around me very much know, I've been reading a book kind of off and on lately. I've not finished it yet. But I've been reading a book lately about... um, um, It's called uh, The Preacher and the Presidents. It's about Billy Graham and his relationship with all of the presidents since since actually Truman. Uh, He had some kind of relationship with Truman, not much, but then really had a great relationship with Eisenhower and on and on and on. And it, it begins to talk about his access, pretty much unfettered access to the White House, even to the old office, which is very, very interesting for a preacher. And I began to really kind of dial into um, how he, and, and I'm not going to say that he always did everything perfectly, and I don't, think, I don't think even Dr. Graham would say this himself, but the truth is, in a heady place, I mean, what one of us in this room, if we got a, an invitation to go to the Oval Office, would probably say no to it. Now, I know there's politics involved in that, but... but Here's a guy who was regularly there, was regularly spending the night in the White House. Yet he never assimilated. The politics never went to his head. The power, and he had quite a bit of power, never really went to his head. Even when um, when presidents were saying, what do I do next to a preacher? He gave him his opinion. But he never became less than what he was. What well, you and I have got to remember, Janie. I think you were with me back in the day when we were training for um, altar work when the Billy Graham Crusade came here. And I remember his his forward man who was with us on all those Monday nights or Thursday nights, whatever they were, doing the training. I remember he used this thought, and this is a Billy Graham thought: is that you and I need to recognize as Christians. We are representatives of the king in a foreign land. Here's the word I want you to put in your last blank. We are servants of Jesus as aliens. Can I tell you something? And I'm talking about the United States of America. This is not home for us, guys. I love it. I love Oklahoma. I love it a lot more in January than I did a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> but this isn't home. We are representatives of the king as aliens in a foreign land. Daniel, Mishael, Hananiah, Azariah all did it really, really well. We're going to see what happens to the three men when they get tossed into the furnace in chapter 3 next week. Here's my question. I want you to think about this as we work through this. How assimilated are you into modern culture? Are you living as an alien in a foreign land? Or have you been assimilated into what has largely become a pretty pagan culture, even here in the U.S.